morning. Um, so we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. So now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift. One has this gift, another has that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thanks, Cheryl, for reading for us. Are Christians anti-sex? Are Christians anti-sex? In a culture that's saturated by sex, it's assumed that every sexual desire should be satisfied. In fact, some people say that it's harmful to resist our sexual desires. They say that we're defined by our sexual preferences, our sexual self-identity. And so a message like last week's message, which was warning about sexual immorality, could sound prudish and repressive or even harmful. Are Christians anti-sex? Well, that seems like it might have been the case for some of the Christians in Corinth uh, in the first century. Like us today, they were immersed in a sex-saturated culture. And while some of them seem to have been going along with that culture and they were even boasting about their sexual freedoms, others seem to be going to the opposite extreme. So far in his letter, the Apostle Paul has been responding to things that he's heard are going on in the church in Corinth. And now he turns his attention to questions that they've actually raised with him. So can you see there in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now let me just say at this point that if you're using another Bible translation, you might find that some of this passage sounds different. The older versions of the NIV, for example, translate this first verse, it is good for a man not to marry. Now, they're both attempts to translate uh, the Greek, which says more literally, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And they're both, both translations are trying to work out, well, what does Paul mean by not touch a woman? Does he mean not marry, or does he mean not to have sex? 
And I'm not going to get into the details this morning, but let me just say, I think our church Bibles are a good translation. Um, And if you're troubled by that, um, feel free to speak to me afterwards and I'll explain why. Paul seems to be quoting another of the Corinthians' own statements here back at them. That's why it's in quotation marks. It seems that they are saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, not to touch a woman. And again, uh, like when he quoted one of their statements previously in chapter 6, verse 12, for example, uh, his answer seems to be, yes, but. And again, the but is very important. Are the Corinthians right to say it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Well, yes, says Paul, there should be no sex without marriage. We've been seeing that God's plan for sex is that it should take place within marriage between a man and a woman. And so anything else is described as pornea, that is sexual immorality. And that's what we were looking at last week. And you can go back and uh, listen again uh, on the church website or watch again on the YouTube channel. Christians should be remarkable for our chastity, our saying no to sex. Whether the Corinthians intended it or not, their statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, seems to contrast with what God had said all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember what he said there? He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. God's original plan in the Garden of Eden was for man and woman to multiply and fill the earth through reproduction. And so the normal and good pattern was for men and women to pair off and have sex, lots of it, to populate the earth. But things have changed. Jesus says there'll be no marriage in heaven. The main way of filling the earth today is to make disciples of all nations. And so the Corinthians, whether consciously or not, they seem to be overturning Genesis. It is good for the man not to be alone by saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul agrees with them up to a point. He strongly affirms the value of singleness and celibacy in this chapter in particular. That seems to be what he means in verse 7 when he says, I wish that all of you were as I am, that is happily single and celibate. Singleness is not second best. That verse from Genesis, it's not good for the man to be alone, is not the final word on sex and relationships. I think maybe taking that one verse as the only word on the subject might have led to a lot of misery among Christians who wish they were married. No, singleness is not second best. We'll see later in the chapter how Paul strongly affirms the single life. We'll see why he can describe it as a gift. You see, sex is not the be-all and end-all. And marriage is not the be-all and end-all. Christians can sometimes give that impression, can't we? 
but there's something profoundly honouring to God about someone using their body entirely in God's service and saying no to anything else, however tempting it might be. So there's a lot of truth in the Corinthian statement. Are they right that it is good for a man not to touch a woman? Yes. But. But. There is a but. Just as there must be no sex without marriage, it's also true that there should be no sex, so, sorry, no marriage without sex. An active sex life is a normal, healthy, right and good part of a Christian marriage. Let me say immediately that I know that some couples are not able to have sex, most likely for medical reasons. I'll come on to that. But if you are married and if you can, keep up an active sex life. And that's the central message of today's Bible passage. I realise that might be hard to hear if you're not married and you wish you were. Maybe you wonder why you bothered to come this morning. But you might be married one day and actually you can pray for and encourage healthy marriages among your friends, even if you're not married yourself. The Bible says that marriage should be honoured by all. So what makes healthy marriages concerns all of us. I spoke last week about how we can easily think that our bodies don't really matter. They're just like ice cream tubs. Uh, kind of useful in their own way, but not particularly special and ultimately disposable. And that can cause people to think that it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. We can sleep around, we can have sex with whoever we want to because our bodies don't really matter. They're just like ice cream tubs. But it can also tip us the other way. If our bodies don't really matter, it doesn't matter if we don't have sex within marriage. In fact, sex even within marriage can feel a little bit base, a bit icky, a bit unspiritual. And that seems to be how some of the Christians in Corinth were feeling. They saw the sex-saturated culture around them. They saw scandalous sexual immorality even within the church. And they thought the best thing to do was to stop having sex altogether. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, they said. But Paul strongly contradicts that thinking. And he gives two reasons why it's really important to have sex within marriage, if you possibly can. No marriage without sex, he says, because of temptations. Have a look at verse 2. Verse 1, he says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but, he says, verse 2, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Precisely because of the scandalous sexual immorality that he's been talking about in chapters 5 and 6, Paul says that married couples should keep up their sex life. Maybe the reason some Christians in Corinth were going to prostitutes was because their wives were withholding sex. Now that doesn't excuse it, 
doesn't make it right. But Paul is realistic about the temptations that can arise. Once sexual desire has been awakened, it can be hard to put back in the box. That's why he says in verse 5 that if they abstain from marital relations, it should only be by mutual consent and only for a limited time to devote themselves to prayer. Then, he says, come together again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you. We need to be realistic about our sex drives. Satan loves to creep into marriages and use the absence of sex as a reason to drive a couple apart and to introduce sexual immorality. In marriages that break down, especially through adultery, often it's the case that the active sex between the couple has long since ceased. So let me say again, it doesn't excuse sexual immorality, but a healthy sex life within marriage can be a help in not allowing Satan a foothold. Let's not be foolishly super spiritual about these things. Now there's another more fundamental reason why married couples should keep up an active sex life, and that is because you belong to one another. You belong to one another. That's what he says right at the core of today's passage. Have a look at verse 3 as I read through it. Verse 3, he says, The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her, to her husband's. Verse 4, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. You belong to one another, he says. Marriage isn't just a contract. It's not just two individuals agreeing to live parallel lives. No, we saw last week that in the words of Genesis, the two become one flesh. We are utterly, profoundly and lastingly united in marriage. We say in the marriage service, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. Foremost in those things is our own body. Just as a Christian belongs to Jesus, you are not your own, Paul said last week, a married Christian also belongs to their spouse. Someone asked last week how that fits together. Chapter 6, verse 15 says that when we become Christians, our bodies are members of Christ himself. They're arms and legs and limbs and, and uh, organs that belong to Christ. Does that mean uh, that in marriage he has to share us? No. Because our bodies are designed for marital sex, actually we honour Jesus. We go with the grain of his purpose for our bodies through sex in marriage. Just as a single person says something profound with their body when they say no to sex for the sake of Christ, so in a different way, a married person is modelling the gospel of union with Christ when they unite with their spouse. That bond, that self-giving, 
means that Paul can use remarkably strong language about the claims a married couple have on one another's bodies. In verse 2, they're imperatives. He means a man must have his own wife and a woman must have her own husband. Again in verse 3, the husband must fulfill his marital duty. Literally, he must pay the debt to his wife. He owes her and the wife to her husband. In verse 4, they have authority over one another's bodies. They are not their own. And in verse 5, it's literally, do not defraud each other. It's the same word that's translated cheat back in chapter 6. It's remarkably strong language, isn't it? You don't just cheat on your spouse if you have an affair with someone else. You also cheat on them if you don't maintain an active sex life with them, if you can. Sex within marriage is not an optional extra, a nice-to-have for birthdays and Christmas, Valentine's Day if you're lucky. It's not something that should be withheld in manipulation or as punishment for some petty offence. It's something we owe our spouse. When we get married, we're gladly giving ourselves to the other person, our bodies and everything we are. And that should be expressed wherever possible in an active and healthy sex life. If you're not prepared to do that, think again about marriage. There's a radical equality here in the way it's expressed. Did you notice that, as Cheryl read? The stereotype might be of men demanding sex from their wives, abusing their authority, but did you notice that husbands and wives have exactly the same rights in these verses? Paul alternates between them. Verse 3, the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. It's radical equality. I think it's the only situation in the whole Bible, by the way, where it's right and good that a woman has authority over a man. And in each of these verses, Paul focuses on responsibilities rather than rights. He doesn't say that a man must demand his conjugal rights from his wife. No, he says a man must fulfil his duty to his wife, pay his debt to his wife, and so on. So we mustn't go away from this passage thinking, yeah, too right, my, my spouse needs to step up. From now on, I'm going to demand such and such from them. No, we need to take responsibility for our own conduct. How can I serve my spouse sexually? How can I give myself to them better? If the emphasis is on our responsibility, our self-giving to the other, then that will mean that we're more interested in how we can please our spouse than what we ourselves want. Hopefully you've got the idea. If you're married, and if you can, keep up an active sex life. Both because of temptation, but more than that, because you belong to one another. 
it's important. If you're too busy or too tired, what can you do to make time? Scheduling can feel unromantic. We think it should be spontaneous. But it might be necessary to set time aside. And in fact, having something to look forward to might be part of it. It might be that there are particularly pressured times. There's a new baby or one of you is ill. But don't get out of the habit long term. One wise word of advice is never say never, uh, never say no, sorry, without saying when. Not tonight, but let's make time on Tuesday or whatever, or as soon as I'm better. What about for those who are struggling? I think today's teaching would say persevere and ask for help if you need it. You might both find you don't enjoy it much. Not, why not just give up? But persevere and it will get better. I've put the details on the sheet of uh, this book by Amelia and Greg Clark, One Flesh, A Practical Guide to Honeymoon Sex and Beyond. Uh, it may be worth getting that and looking through it on your own or together. It might be that you need to see a doctor or ask to be referred to a specialist. Such people do exist even on the NHS. Don't settle for a sexless marriage until you've tried everything. For some people I know it will just not be physically possible. And I think it's right that that should be a grief. Know that you are still married. Sex doesn't define a marriage. It's simply a normal and appropriate part of a marriage where possible. I think today's teaching su suggests that if you're in that situation, you need to be particularly alert to the temptations of Satan. I started with the question, are Christians anti-sex? I hope you can see that the answer is no. Because we've got a high view of sex, we think it's powerful and important, we're pro-abstinence outside of marriage. But for the very same reason, we're pro-sex within marriage. Before Jenny and I got married, our pastor at the time asked me whether we were sleeping together. He wanted to check that we weren't. After we got married, he asked the same question. Is everything working as it should? Because he wanted to check now that we were. Both are important. Christians are not anti-sex. And in fact, I think I'm right in saying that it's borne out by the evidence. Surveys apparently show that married Christians have more sex and more satisfying sex than any other group in society. I'm not going to say more now. For some of you, I expect that's been more than enough already. Maybe you didn't know what you were letting yourself in for when you popped into church this morning. But if today has provoked questions or brought to the surface particular things that you're struggling with, do feel free to speak to someone. You're welcome to talk to me or to a trusted Christian friend. 
Uh, for the women in particular, Dr. J has said she'd be happy for people to speak to her. She's not just a medical doctor, but a godly uh, Christian woman uh, and our safeguarding officer. I hope you feel that the church family is a safe place to share our struggles and to support one another, even with the most personal of uh, concerns. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father God, we thank you and praise you for your good pattern uh, for which you've made us. We thank you and praise you that in whatever situation we're in, we can honour you and use our bodies by our abstinence or by our physical acts to confirm or deny the gospel. Father, please turn us from sexual immorality and teach us to give our bodies and our whole lives to the Lord and to our spouses if we're married. In Jesus' name, amen.